0: The following audio is brought to you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, um, we're going to basically get started with uh, just a brief reminder of where we've been and kind of what we're doing. And um, I try to do this every week, just whether you were here the previous week or not, but also to kind of just sort of set our perspective each time before we come in uh, of what it is that we're doing. We're in a, a very—just understand that for me, the time period that we're in and talking about is a little bit awkward because I like to teach the Bible. I like to go to the Bible, and, and I feel kind of like um, a roadrunner—or no, the E. Coyote when he's kind of walked off the ledge— you know, and the ledge is back there, and he's sort of standing over thin air, you know, and he's like looking at the camera. Uh, I feel a little bit like that because I, I don't have necessarily the Bible to stand on here. The Bible is kind of silent about the time period that we're talking about, so we're kind of in history. But I also know that there are some really significant, very important events that took place during this time period that if we don't at least have some sort of Reservoir to draw on before we go into the New Testament, then some of the things that happen in the New Testament are kind of weird or strange to us a little bit, and so it's with that kind of spirit that we're going through, albeit very quickly, through these 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the open of the New Testament, and so we've been making a a really a pretty quick pace, and we're going to be quickly into the New Testament. And when we go into the New Testament, it's going to be a little different than you might imagine. It's not just going to be book by book through the New Testament. It's really going to be a chronological um, unpacking of events that took place in the New Testament. But here's the other caveat to that, is that means we're we're going to start, obviously going to have to talk about the gospel, but the gospels themselves were not written as the first books in the New Testament. So there's the formation of the church that happens after the advent of Christ. So it's going to be a little bit weird to get our sea legs about us in the New Testament. But um, the point is that all of this that we're doing is is really we're trying to form the background for what we're going to be doing in the New Testament, how we're going to understand it. So uh, with that in mind, just remember some of the events that took place in the last last time we were together that we talked about. Um, Obviously tensions are getting really thick in Palestine at this point uh, in history. So we're looking right now at about the 170s B.C., so 170 or so B.C., and we're going to scoot through the next 10 years or so uh, in tonight, but, but about 170 B.C., somewhere around there. Um, the tensions are starting to grow in Palestine. Um, there are, obviously, Hellenization, which is the the Greek influence over the rest of the world, making Greek, uh, making foreign people appear more Greek is the process of Hellenization, teaching them the language, teaching them the culture, those kinds of things. Um, You can see some of that in um, uh, both, I think, British culture and American culture throughout the world. Uh, The language becomes pretty, uh, has permeated a lot of the, the the. known world. When I go to a foreign country and you walk into an airport, you typically don't have to know the language. You just have to know English. And as long as you know English, you can probably get by just about anywhere because you've got it on the sign. Similar kind of idea as Hellenization is teaching them the language, the culture, and that kind of thing. Uh, obviously that's being pushed on, not on every culture, but in particular in Palestine, um, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure this is true of most cultures, but Jews especially have fought for a thousand years up to this point or more to try to preserve this culture, to try to remain distinct, even when they were enslaved in Egypt, to try to remain distinct from the Egyptians was a task, right? To not intermarry with pagans, that was a task. That's typically on the whole of all the cultures in the world at the time, that's not exactly the most common thing. Normally it was intermarry so that you can adu- you can bring their culture into yours, right? But that's not the case for Jews. They fought many, many years to try to keep themselves distinct from the rest of the world. Their entire law in Leviticus is all built around being distinct from the rest of the world. So you now get this Hellenization that's being pushed in, and so it, the, the tension is starting to grow because there's this desire from those outside who are ruling over them to become more like the Greeks. And everything that's baked into their DNA is saying, no, we cannot do that. We cannot become like the Greeks. They eat pigs, as an example, and we cannot, right? Unfortunately. Um, for them, anyway. Uh, as we've been reminded, I like short shoulders. Uh, so. Um, so, anyway, it's getting, it's getting, the tension is growing, all right, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, but also, in addition to that, the uh, Seleucids are ruling, and they are ruling the area to the north of Palestine. They were ruling the area to the north of Palestine in what would be typically called Syria. And to the south and throughout Palestine, the Ptolemies are in command. Now, remember. Just kind of keep it in your mind. The Ptolemies and the Seleucids are both Greek. All right? Alexander the Great conquers basically the known world. When he dies, he leaves his kingdom in control of really four generals, but two predominant ones, Ptolemy and Seleucid. They are both, uh, they're both Greek uh, nations. However, they're different. And they have a different set of ruling standards and all those kinds of things. And so, the Seleucids, who are north of Palestine, want to extend their borders. And they want to conquer Palestine. And that's going to mean going against some of their Greek brothers, so to speak. The Ptolemies. And so they do. They, they have these Syrian campaigns where they, they go in. And these Palestinian wars where they, they try to fight over the Promised Land. it takes them several times. But eventually, the Seleucids gained control over Palestine. So uh, about the 190s, which is what we talked about last time, about the 190-ish, I think it was 198 officially in the the history books, the control of Palestine shifts from the Ptolemies to the Seleucids. Both Greek, but it's a shift nonetheless. And so it's a whole different kind of uh, idea, a thought of, of ruling and all kinds of things that go into that in a transition of power like that, as I'm sure it would be from one king to another. Uh, but the point is, now we're in the Seleucid, the reign of the Seleucids in Palestinian territory. Now, under the Seleucids, one big thing that changed is that the offices, the main offices, in, in Judean uh, culture were now up for bid. Up, They were up for auction. So, high priest, you want to be a high priest? How much money you got? Because here's the deal with foreign nations, or just nations in general, they like money. I mean, have you heard this before? Is this shocking to you? Uh, money talks in, you know, when it comes to control. And so, the Seleucids, and here's the other part of this, I don't know if you've heard this before, but when you send your troops miles and miles and miles away from home and You send them on these campaigns the campaigns themselves don't tend to make much money. You know this they tend to cost a lot of money So you got food you got expenses of travel you got you know the per diems You got to pay off the generals credit cards and things like this those things cost a lot of money to do that and All the missiles and all the kinds of things whatever armament they've got to take with them all of that costs money and so when you take over a country after extensive battles like Palestine, the Palestinian region, now it's in your control, uh, you need to recoup some of that, so you're hoping that the GDP of that nation will help contribute to your coffers a little bit. All right so so then the point is, oh we've got we've got offices that people really want. okay? well, uh, who's the highest bidder? That's a good way to make money is to sell off these offices. And so the high priestly office becomes a a revolving door, so to speak, of who can pay the most money. And so what ends up happening, eventually, from one scenario to another, you have to go listen to last week to be able to sort it out, because I'm not sure I can recite it off the top of my head right now. Um, essentially, Ant- Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, comes to the throne, and he's a, he's a bad dude, alright, he's a bad dude, and he... The highest bidder in the for the high priestly office is a guy who is of the worst ilk when it comes to Hellenizing the nation. And he is fine with sacrificing to Zeus and telling the Jewish high priest or the Jewish priesthood, you now have to sacrifice to Zeus. This is part of the Hellenization process. We want to become like Greece. This, this doesn't make a lot of people happy. And so... Antiochus is on a military campaign to now try to go down into Egypt. So it's not just enough to take Palestine. Now we've got to go down into Egypt and try to take Egypt from the Ptolemies. Well, it's not going so well down in Egypt. And word makes its way back through a game of telephone back into Palestine that it sounds like, we think, if the rumors are true, Antiochus is dead. Antiochus, the one who accepted the bid from this high priest who's wanting us to sacrifice pigs to Zeus, he, he's dead. And so now's the time, before we transition kings, now's the time to go take the priesthood back, right? So there's an, a little bit of an uprising in Israel to go into Jerusalem, and some of the conservatives are like, hey, we gotta, we got to take the priesthood back, so they, they get rid of the guy who is trying to sacrifice pigs to Zeus. Turns out Antiochus isn't dead. I hate it when that happens, right? So Antiochus gets word in Egypt that the guy who he selected to be high priest has now been run out of town on a rail and that the conservative ideology of the Jews is trying to make its way back. He takes that as a coup against him. So, that's where we stopped last week. And that brings us to him going down into Jerusalem. So, he heads back to Jerusalem. And let me just tell you, Antiochus is mad. All right, He is upset because he sees a coup happening in Israel. So, he goes down into Palestine, into Jerusalem. And on the 25th of December... Stop me if that date's familiar to you. Okay. Uh... On the 25th of December, 168 B.C., Antiochus IV, that is Antiochus Epiphanes, which basically means the appearing of God, he thought highly of himself, Uh, comes in to crush this Jewish resistance. Now, this is an event that probably a lot of you have heard about before, I would assume. Uh, Antiochus comes in, He wants to crush the Jewish resistance. He wants to reimpose Greek worship in Jerusalem. And he wants to bring back the daily sacrifices um, that were there uh, before and reintroduce the worship of pagan gods into the temple. And that included sacrificing a pig to the Greek god Zeus. So he walks into the temple and just does that right there on the on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Just imagine that for a second. Desecration of desecrations. That is, you can't imagine anything uh, in if you're a Jew. Worse than some more offensive than somebody doing that, but what you Don't miss this, because so often you hear that story, but you hear it in isolation. What you miss often is that many Jews, before he did that, many Jews were already sacrificing pigs to Zeus. Not necessarily in the temple, but already bowing the knee to Greek ideology and Greek worship. Hellenization had pushed that far into Jewish society that many were going and buying in hook, line, and sinker to what the high priest was doing before. So there was already a rebellion in the hearts of the people that had essentially brought this about that wasn't necessarily the case. Antiochus, by all accounts, was pretty okay with the Jews worshiping however they wanted to worship, he was going to leave them alone for the most part. It was the Jews that then decided to, to you know bid for the offices and try to gain power and leverage over their brothers, try to push Hellenization, try to become more like the rest of the world. It was mostly the Jews that decided to do that piece of it. So when there was a conservative rebellion against that kind of ideology that was taking hold in Judea, Antiochus comes in and resets things back to the way that they they were. So his sacrificing a pig on the altar was in some sense a reset back to the way things were trending beforehand, right? So you you have to keep that in mind, that the hearts of many were with Antiochus, not against him, all right? Some obviously were very much against. So Not only does he do this, it gets more heinous, so just bear with me on some of these details if you're a little squeamish, I'm sorry. Um, The sanctuary itself was renamed the Temple of Olympian Zeus. So he renames the temple in Jerusalem, Temple of Olympian Zeus, and temple prostitution begins. Not only that, Jews are also forced to eat m- the meat of unclean sacrifices like pigs during the celebration of Antiochus's birthday and are compelled to join in celebrating the Greek god Dionysus all while the books of the scriptures are desecrated. So it, it starts to get pretty ugly, needless to say. Not only that, But then it gets more vicious than that. He is, like I say, he's really mad about what's happened. And so he's going to make sure that the Greeks remember, or the Jews remember this. So he, his soldiers, put to death the women who had their children circumcised and puts to death their families and puts to death those who circumcised the children. Not only that, but then he kills the infants too by hanging them around their dead mother's neck. Yeah. Pretty awful. Um, as you can see, like circumcision is the one sign that would distinguish a male Jew from a Gentile Jew in this era. So no one is going to be circumcised. And in the fact, they thought it was just the strangest of all practices. But again, go back to the reason for the law, the reason for circumcision. Before you marry a Gentile woman, before you, cre- you procreate with a Gentile woman, you bear the marks of God on your body, right? So there's no getting around that. It's very obvious to everyone that would ever see you, especially your wife, that you bear the marks. Of belonging to God before you procreate with a pagan woman. So that's the idea of circumcision. It, by its very nature, separates you from someone who is just gen- is Gentile and cares nothing for God. So he goes back and really puts this tightens the screws down on people that would seek to do that. So he's essentially erasing any incentive that anyone would have to ever take on the marks of circumcision again, right? Uh, so if you want to wipe Judaism off the map, that's one way to begin to do it. And so that's what he, what he does. Makes, makes it very clear that it's not going to be tolerated. Okay. Um, now, it's not super clear as to why Exactly, he does this. Um, so historians are kind of confused by Antiochus because he seems to be very religiously tolerant at first, and then he does something like this, which is this is like Hitlerian kind of stuff, right? This is this is you know like Hitler. This is like masochistic and just and awful, and so. It throws historians for a loop because it's difficult to read. You don't have a ton of information on him, first of all. But then you see this like just drastic mood swing all of a sudden. And so people go, well, it, it's, it could be because he was trying to go down into Egypt. He was trying to expand into Egypt. He was stretched really thin. He was stressed, don't you know. And, uh, and when he got down into Egypt, something I haven't even talked about yet, the Romans are actually the ones that impede him from going further into Egypt. They wanted to get into Egypt and they're kind of down there, and they sort of put the you know, the kibosh on that. And, and so that frustrates him a lot, is that he's running into Rome, and he's really uh, frustrated by that, I guess. And so maybe it was that, or maybe in his more private life, even though he allowed the Jews to continue to worship, he still was really annoyed by their insistence on monotheism, that, yeah, they want to worship God, and eh. Uh, and maybe he just sort of rolled his eyes, and he was, but he was privately really annoyed by it, and finally he had just had too much. And when they begin to kind of do this uh, back home, he sees it as a coup, and he, he just, he's like, I've had enough with you monotheistic people. Um, maybe all of those were contributing factors. Probably all of those had something to do with it. But it seems pretty clear that in Israel at the time, there are two camps. One camp really wants to become just like the Greeks, honestly, I mean, just think about this for just a second. If, just to make the case for Hellenization, I know, right? I, I don't mean to do that, but just think about it from their perspective for just a second. If you're constantly ruled by one country after another, you have been conquered by Alexander the Great 200 years ago, nearly. 330-something, right? We're working on Seleucus and Ptolemy's great-great-great-great-grandchildren that are now on the throne. So this is a long time now. The kids that are, the, that are now the adults in the land, they've really never known anything but Greek culture. They've grown up under it, right? But here's your, great, your, your grandpa over here in the corner. He's 90-something years old, and he's talking about how it used to be back in the old days right, and you're just sort of, as the young buck, sort of rolling your eyes at everything, you don't want to hear any of that and that kind of thing, you're tired of always having this culture that you carry with you always being the reason that you don't fit in with anybody else. Just look around you. It happens every single day in all of your families. You've all seen it. I've seen it. It's, that is just the nature of life, Right. The kids grow up, and they don't want to be rejected by their peers. Well, Hellenization is pushing so far into these cultures, and the Greeks have ruled for so many years that Greek culture seems to be a foregone conclusion. And yet, you're the oddball when you go to the gymnasium and the men are all, you know, not clothed, taking their baths or whatever, and here you are standing out amongst everybody else because you bear the marks of circumcision. Or you have funny practices, you don't eat pig, you don't eat all kinds of other different things, you trim your beard a certain way, and all kinds of laws that you have to adhere to that everybody looks at you and goes, that is so weird, I cannot believe you do that. You'd be amazed at how much that actually wears on somebody over time, right? So when you get this person who says, why don't we just become like the Greeks? Who cares? We don't even understand... What it is grandpa was teaching us anyway. Right? Maybe grandpa also wasn't that great at raising his children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. All right, let's admit to that a little bit too. At some point, at what point do you finally just go, you know what? Who cares? When I go to temple and we sacrifice and all that kind of stuff, I'm not really in it anyway. I don't really, I don't really want to be there. I'm just there because grandpa makes me go. So at what point do you just go, let's just give in, you know? So there is a a pro-Hellenization group inside Israel that that becomes abundantly clear is there. And then there's also an anti-Hellenization group in Israel. And it seems like all of these circumstances that are about to unfold right now and all the stuff that's going in is largely due to that inter-family conflict going on inside Israel. Some want to capitulate, and some do not. Some buy in and and really understand Judaism and understand the worship of God, and they, they don't want to do anything other than what's in the law because they really do believe that they're going to stand before God one day and they're going to give an account on Judgment Day for their actions. And then they're looking at their peers who absolutely do not believe that. Stop me if you've heard this one before. So there's this going on, right? So now we're going to get to another part that you've probably heard before, or some of, these, some of this you've heard before. Whatever the case, uh, it's certain that Antiochus' measures uh, pushed the Jewish people beyond what they could bear. This was the event. December 25th, one sixty eight was the event where they finally had it. And this powder keg in Israel is about to blow. All right, But there's still one more little event that takes place that just lights the fuse to just blow it all up. And that is, there was this little priestly guy named Mattathias And he was in a village called Modin, and it was in between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. And Mattathias was from the Hasmonean family. Has anybody ever heard of the Hasmonean dynasty? Anybody ever heard that name before? Maybe it's bouncing in there somewhere. Um, But eventually this act from Antiochus starts to spread, and they go, okay, we're we're pushing Hellenization now. We're just going for it. Jews, you got to give in, all right? You just got to start being polytheistic. You got to start adopting Greek culture at a much faster rate. We can't deal with this monotheism stuff anymore. Mattathias is a priest. He's in his little village. He's minding his own business, he and his boys and his family. And he is, the soldiers from the Seleucid dynasty, the Seleucid soldiers come in and they tell him Here's what you're going to do. We want you to sacrifice a pig to Zeus. And Mattathias says, No. I'm sure he had more choice words than that. But there's actually a... a, um, In 1 Maccabees, there is a um, transcript of the speech that he gives in response. And I didn't record it here, but it's quite profound. Um, So... Anyway, he gives this speech, and basically his response is, in no uncertain terms, no, I'm not going to do that. I've had enough with this. And we like Mattathias. He's a pretty conservative guy, so we like him. He wants to conserve the worship of the one true God. Uh, So, the soldiers turn to another Jew in the audience, and they say, which we don't know the name of this guy, but they say, well, then you do it, and he does it. And Matthias now has is blowing his lid. He and his sons murder this guy, just kill him right there in front of everybody. And so then the soldiers naturally they step in to stop this act from happening, and they turn and they kill these soldiers. All right. So kind of like you remember Moses in the whole when he's seeing the Egyptian beat the Jew and he, you know, kills the Egyptian and then he runs into the wilderness. Well, Mattathias and his boys realize they got to do the same thing, so they retreat to the hill country north of Jerusalem so that they can hide out. And this is where they run into a group called the Hasidim. Now, we talked about the Hasidim last week. Um, I'm going to... Let me pause on that for just a second. Go, Go ahead and write that down. They they joined themselves in with the Hasidim, and i got another bullet point about the Hasidim we'll talk about. Um, The Hasidim, the word literally means righteous ones, essentially. Um, They hated the Hellenistic culture. So the Hasidim see not only worship of God, but adherence to the law as tremendously important. And they're paying attention to what's going on in Jerusalem, and they see this sacrifice of the pig on the altar in Jerusalem and them turning the temple into the worship of Zeus and all of these kinds of things as an abomination, and rightly so. And they want that to be reversed. They're willing to do whatever it takes to, almost whatever it takes, to reverse that from happening in Jerusalem and put it back the way it should be, right? So, here comes the Hasmoneans, Mattathias and his boys. They're running out into the hills of Jerusalem and they'll go, you'll never believe what we just did, (laughs) right? And so now the the Hasmoneans, Mattathias and his sons, are like, here's here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill these Seleucids once and for all. Well, this happens to, they have common cause with one another. Because the Hasidim are like, well we want to get the temple back the way it was too, and the Hasmoneans are like, yeah, we want to do that too, and we also want to kill the Seleucids. All right? Well, the Hasidim may not care anything about the Seleucids after they get the temple back, but they certainly want the temple back, and so for now, we can be friends, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend, is essentially the kind of the way it works. And uh, and so that's what they wanted to do. So um, the Hasidim... Uh, and the Hasmoneans and Mattathias and his sons start to revolt against the Seleucids. Now, when when they do that, they start going through the land first and foremost, seeking to win the land back. So you don't go right into Jerusalem. That's not their goal. The first thing you do is attack all these little villages that the Seleucids have taken over. You, you And then you snowball things, right? So you got a band of men out here in the caves, out north of Jerusalem, and you kind of, okay, here's the plan. We've got a small army. We're going to go attack a, a smaller village. We're going to gain the army from the, of the Jews from there, and then we're going to snowball this thing until we get enough people to walk into Jerusalem. That's kind of the idea, militarily genius. Uh, and so they go through the land, and they start killing all the Hellenists, not just... Not just the Seleucids, and not just driving out the Seleucids, but if you're a Hellenizer, if you're one of those people that like to capitulate to the Greeks, then we're going to kill you too. And so that's why it's really an inner family conflict that begins this whole thing, is because they're really ticked about the people that want to become like the Greeks, okay? So they start going through, they start killing a lot of them, they start driving a lot of them out, um, and... Then again, they begin to destroy all the pagan altars. Um, They forcibly circumcised all the children that all the Jewish children inside Israel's borders whose mothers did not have them circumcised. Right, so they're Hellenizers. Essentially, it's a telltale sign that you you're giving in because you didn't have your son circumcised on the eighth day. And so they begin forcibly circumcising the children, and essentially they cannot run from their Judaism anymore. And the Hellenists that survived run to the Gentiles, run to the Greeks for safety, for sanctuary, right? So they're, they're doing two things at once. They're both purging Israel from Jews who were born into Judaism, but who were caving into the Greeks, and they're purging the Seleucid dynasty at the same time, right? So it's a, it's a massive purging, okay, of the whole thing. Um, so, essentially, Mattathias dies pretty soon after this. Not long, anyway. And um, he, le- he leaves the rebellion to th- his sons. There's three sons that he has that take control of this dynasty, and they do it in successive order. One dies, leaves it to his brother. The next dies, leaves it to his brother. That kind of thing. Um, so he does it, le- leaves it to his, his three sons. His oldest son is Judas. He's going to take over first. His second son is Jonathan. He's going to take over second. And his other son, Simon, is going to take over third. And Judas begins his reign under this sort of essentially very informal Hasmonean dynasty. And so with this Hasmonean dynasty that starts in about 166, he starts attacking some of the Seleucid forces. And guess what? They're actually winning the battles against these Seleucids. It turns out when it comes to armies, the Greek army under Alexander the Great was maybe the best that's ever lived, I don't know. Under the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, not that strong. All right? Not great military commanders, apparently. But and then the Romans, obviously, and the Romans are amazing. So um, anyway, it, it turns out that the Hasmoneans were actually really pretty good too. And so they start winning some initial victories over these Seleucid forces, and they're kind of everything sort starting to snowball. All right? We come back to December 25th again. This time, only three years have passed since Antiochus Epiphanes walked into the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar. Three years to the day. You think they had that marked on their calendar? You think it just happened to fall that way? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think there might have been some intention there. Let's put that date on our calendar. We're going to make sure they remember this one. And so on the 25th of December, 165 B.C., so this is three years later, on the very day in which it had been desecrated three years prior, the temple was cleansed and rededicated under the leadership of Judas uh, of the Hasmonean dynasty. And worship in the temple was restored. They tore down the pagan altars. They built a whole new altar there in the temple, they begin to do to sacrifice uh, truly again and uh, basically cleanse the temple. So they walk into Jerusalem and they drive out the Seleucid forces. They, they defeat them. Uh, they, they take over Jerusalem again and they restore worship in the city again. And it's a big moment of celebration. So they celebrated and celebrated and celebrated and celebrated. And they celebrated the rededication of the temple for eight days with rejoicing. And they issued a public edict. So I actually, this part right here, they, from starting at they all the way to, to uh, uh, the end of the sentence, is taken straight out of 1 Maccabees. They decreed by public edict, ratified by vote, that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year, these eight days of celebration. To this day, the Jewish people commemorate this event during Hanukkah. That is what Hanukkah is celebrating. is is eight days of Jewish revolt and, re- and cleansing the temple from Greek pagan influence. And so, during Hanukkah, now I don't claim to know everything there is to know about Hanukkah, alright? Uh, but, uh, that is sort of outside the realm of expertise in the Bible, as it were, but um, essentially the Hanukkah menorah, if you look at it, it's got nine lights on it, right? Nine candles, four on one side, four on another, and then there's a main stem going up the middle. Um, they light the, uh, from what I understand, they light the main one, and then every day of Hanukkah they light each, uh, another light, basically, and the symbol there is uh, God's, the symbol of the light on the menorah is God's sustaining presence with Israel. And so their lighting of the menorah is sort of the progressive cleansing of the temple that took place so many years ago, the rededication of the temple, and God's presence being restored with Israel yet again, right? And so they celebrate this over the course of eight days. And I, when, I heard, when I read that, I was thinking, wait a second, nine lights? I thought the menorah had seven lights. The menorah has seven, right? And it turns out, yes, it does. In fact, the menorah in the temple that was there in Exodus and described in Exodus has seven. It's three on one side, three on another, and one main one, and it's made from gold. So there is, it turns out, in Judaism, I learned this today, two different menorahs. One is the menorah I was familiar with, which is the menorah that goes in the temple that's got seven lights. You see this come back in Revelation, actually, which is why it kind of piqued my interest Is like, why there's nine. Then there is the Hanukkah menorah, which has nine lights. So if you read in Exodus, hey, it's only got seven, and then you see a Hanukkah celebration that's got nine, don't let that freak you out. It might only bother people like me. I don't know. But... Um, <laughs> There is so there is a tradition that goes along with Hanukkah. I think that has something to do with God sustaining the oil and allowing the la- the lamp to be lit in the temple. That they didn't have the supply of oil uh, for the temple. I think, but I'm not totally. I didn't get a clear report on on that, so I'm not totally sure. That's why I didn't bring it up tonight. But the the what you might also be talking about is in the temple the seven lampstand menorah that's typically in the temple um, has oil in it and the priest is to keep that oil lit by refilling or keep the keep the wick lit by refilling the oil and trimming the wick and that is a symbol of god's sustained presence so like in revelation as an example jesus says uh, the the lamp stands are the seven churches right and so he says He's walking among the lampstands. The lampstand is a seven-lamped menorah. He, as the priest, is walking amongst the lampstands, keeping the Spirit of God there in the churches. And if anyone doesn't repent from the things that he says in Revelation 2 and 3, he puts out their lampstand. In other words, he doesn't refill the Spirit of God's presence inside the church. Does that make sense? So that's the, The picture that's going on there is the priest in amongst the temple. Anyway, that's why it drew my attention to it, so I thought I would say that just in case you were really familiar or curious about Jewish culture and, and thought, hey, there's nine here. Um, all right. So uh, so we get the celebration of Hanukkah. Now, that means, by the way, that Hanukkah is celebrated at the time of Jesus. In fact, you actually get a reference to Hanukkah in John 10, 22. You can write that down and you can find it later. It's called the celebration of dedication and it's right there Jesus is in the midst of, when he says, I and the Father are one, it's during that celebration. Alright. Um, okay. So, uh, but to find out more about that, you got to come to Feast, because uh, we're going through the book of John. Uh, <laughs> cross-promotion. Um, so, this group of, hang on just a second. These people, the Hasmoneans, Judas, especially, become very special people in Jewish history, as you can imagine. You took a band of peasants from a tiny little village out west of Jerusalem, and you took back the temple of God and rededicated the temple to worship of God. You can imagine, that's George Washington territory, right? were Jews. Right? You're like, four bullets in the coat and, and, you know, took a band of happy little warriors and kicked out the largest dynasty in the world, right? I mean, that, that is, that's where they stand in Jewish lore and why Hanukkah is still celebrated this day. So, they take on a nickname, um, as you can imagine, I'm sure many nicknames, but they take on a, a nickname that becomes more like a surname, like a last name, uh, m- the Maccabees, uh, Judas Maccabeus and the word Maccabee—it's kind of lost in translation. Most people think it means it comes from the word hammer, so they became the Hammer family. <laughs> MC, you might know him—he's a descendant of the. Ha- I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> terrible 1980s joke. <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, the name of the family. So they're, they're the Hasmoneans. That is their, their, their name is, I guess, Hasmonius uh, would be their, their name. Uh, but the nickname that they took on were the Maccabees. And so they became Judas Maccabeus was Judas the Hammer. And, I mean, that's a pretty cool nickname, <laughs> right? Uh, so, and he, they did that because they, they hammered a lot of things. Uh, hammer in the morning, hammer in the evening. Um, So, you know, and uh, yeah, so they were too legit to quit. Um, uh, Okay, (laughs) sorry, I've got so many MC Hammer references moving (laughs) right now. Um, So uh, now at some point in this whole process, there are some supporters who are part of the Hasidim, who, remember, are the righteous ones, what did they care about? They wanted to get that temple in Jerusalem back to the worship of the one true God. And, well, it's back. So at this point, they begin to start kind of going, there begins to be a little rift. This is, this is what happens, by the way. you got a conservative group, and they're, they're like, we want to preserve faith in our culture. We want to see that come back, and so on and so forth and then they start to make headway in that, and then they start to fight with each other. All right, That's the way churches at least do it. And and so it's no different here. They start to uh, kind of fight with each other, and one thing in particular seems to be the catalyst. And it's this, that the Hasidim want to adhere to the law to such an extent that when it comes to the Sabbath day, they don't want to fight. There's no work allowed on the Sabbath day, so on the Sabbath day there's no fighting either. Now what's going to happen? The invading army, it's going to take them two seconds to figure that out. And once they figure it out, are they going to attack Monday through Friday, or Sunday through Friday? No, they're going to go play golf Sunday through Friday. And they're going to gather together on Friday evening for a raid. Because they know it's going to be easy, and that's exactly what happened. So the Hasidim decide, look, we're just going to relax on, sat on the Sabbath and we're not going to do any work. The Seleucids discover this and they attack them, they attack a band of them at least, on a Sabbath and kill them all. And the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, say, obviously they weep and mourn over the death of their brothers. And then they all say, look, we have to agree that when it comes to war, that's not what God was meaning when he said, you got to rest on the Sabbath day. He didn't mean that you can't stop yourself from being killed and your people from being destroyed, right? So they come to an agreement that that's the case, and they part company. The, the Hasidim decide, look, we cannot, it's against our conscience to fight on the Sabbath, and, and the Maccabees decide otherwise. So the, the Hasidim, or the Hasidians, They become the ancestors, really, of the Pharisees. So, I want you to just think about this for just a second. Remember in the New Testament, when the Pharisees go to Jesus, who's eating on the Sabbath, not washing his hands on the Sabbath, they have so many concerns about his activity on the Sabbath day. I, I said it last week, and I say it again, this goes back a long ways, right? So, our ancestors died on a Sabbath. Gave their lives because they believed it was unlawful to work on the Sabbath. And here comes this hippie from Galilee who says, Eh, that's not really what God means, by the way, first of all. And second, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You can see why that's inflaming some sensibilities in the Pharisees, why there's that doesn't jive well with, with them, right? This goes back a long ways, and, and let me just say, I think Jesus knows what he's doing, right? I think he knows what he's doing. That there, there are concerns that the Pharisees have on the Sabbath day that are, uh, and they think they are serving God in doing it, and they are anti-God in doing it. Like when they have a really big problem with him healing a man on the Sabbath day, right? You've gone too far. Okay, so they their antecedents, ancestors, if you will, of the Pharisees and the Maccabean rebels, who were okay with taking violent action, regardless of what setting that took place in, you know, and were willing to compromise on some things. Maybe you might say in order to take that action, became what what eventually would be called the zealots. So you have disciples in amongst the Jesus' band who are zealots. Actually, what's interesting about Jesus' twelve disciples is they are a mixture of all of these groups that begin to form. Uh, maybe with the exception of the Sadducees, but they're... They're, they're a mixture of all these groups. There's some Pharisaical-leaning people in his 12 disciples. There's one called Simon the Zealot in his, in his band of, of disciples. There are, there are probably some Essenes in this that we'll get to next week, but there, there, are, there are people from all the different groups that are there in his disciples, and we're going to talk about all those groups next week and the formation of all those groups. But... Um, So, the point is, there's a disagreement, they part company, we got the Pharisees kind of starting to form already, we got the zealots starting to form already, Uh, and, did I, I didn't advance the slide, that's what the next slide is supposed to say. (laughs) Sorry, yeah, yeah. All right, so, uh, you know, in in addition to some of that, uh, well, maybe I should save that to next week. Yeah, I'll save the text. What, what questions? Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Where was from these last three years? He died, and I, I, I knew you were going to ask me that. I knew David was going to ask me that question. Uh, and I, I cannot remember off the top of my head the year that he died. Um, but I'll get that for you and I'll bring it back. Yes, he does. It wasn't it. It wa- he wasn't quite with it. Uh, th- so this will t- in next week we'll be going into the rest of the Maccabean reign and also the formation of a lot of these groups: um, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, which you may not heard of before; Z- Zealots. We won't talk too much about because there's just not a lot known on them. Um, but we'll talk about all them in relation also to the rest of the Maccabean dynasty. Yeah, a good question. So uh, David's question is: There was a time where going into the Holy of Holies would have been sacrosanct; you'd have been dead. Uh, so remember, the altar is outside the temple. Okay, so he, they're not. He's there's. He's not necessarily in the Holy of Holies when that happens. Uh, however, I would say this: In Ezekiel, the glory of God disappears from the temple, and this is the big. Uh, conundrum that's going on in Israel, even from when they start to rebuild the temple in the promised land, is there is no consecration of the temple where the glory of God comes back. So when Moses builds the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord fills the temple and they can't walk in. When Solomon finishes the temple, the glory of the Lord fills the temple and they can't walk in. When they finish the temple in the 500s, There is no apparent glory that fills the temple, and there is nothing to impede them from walking in. So when you go back and you read Ezekiel's promise, the promise is the glory of the Lord will return, and he'll stand in this spot where the glory of the Lord was taken away, which is on the mountain just east of the temple. Remember, Jesus is the one that stands out east of the temple and pronounces woe onto the city of Jerusalem. In Matthew twenty-three, and that's the last time you see him before he's crucified in Jerusalem. So, or in, in Jerusalem, and so, uh, or before he's taken in and on trial and all that kind of stuff. So, you uh, you have the fulfillment of Ezekiel in the glory of God reappearing in the temple in the person of Jesus, but not really until then. But when he comes in to the temple, he does things like turning over the tables, or driving out the tax collectors and the, you know, goats and things like that that they're making profit with. So um, the glory of the Lord reappearing back in the temple, when he does do that, is really to drive out the Jews, not to drive out Antiochus, right? So there's a bit of biblical theology, I think, that kind of helps fill in the gaps between those two Seems to be. Yeah. Go ahead. I don't think the word Palestine shows up in the Bible. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the shift really is who uh, rules that that area. Um, so in the time, typically on maps and things like that, from the time of their return from Babylon until I mean 1949, I guess it, it kind of takes on the moniker of Palestine, which is a de- derivative of the word Philistines. Um, but it, it basically refers to a foreign occupation a foreign group of people that control that region and so that that region is um, is not seen to belong to Israel so it's not called Israel uh, in, in that era for sure so as a i be using or Israel the okay if you're sharing the gospel with uh, Palestinian, you call it Palestine. If you're sharing the gospel with an Israeli, you call it Israel. Right? That is what Paul means, becoming all things to all people. So that by all means you might win some. It doesn't bother me one way or the other what the term for that land is. What, what is the difference is how is this person going to come to Christ? And I'm not going to put an obstacle <laughs> in front of them that would be the term of a place in, on the map hey, you've already won. <laughs> you got them both together. You say, this land. <laughs> you know. But if you've got them both at the table, woo, you're doing good, baby. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, um, you know, that, that is where we as, as Christians are not obligated to the law, right? So I'm not obligated to the law, whether that's a law written down on a map somewhere. I'm not obligated to that law. I'm not obligated to any of those things, so I can, you know, I'm not, not going to sin, right? But I'm saying, short of doing that, I'm able to use the terms that are, that are favorable to, to the individual in front of me so as not to put a stumbling block in between him coming to Christ. You know, and once he comes to Christ, we can talk about all those things, right? Uh, we can talk about how we need to put away strife and, you know, bitterness and things like that, but between then, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with whatever term anybody wants to use. But that's the reason for the transition, I think, mostly, is that it's really a, a means of communicating who's in control here. And, you know, for Israel, I think there's, n- there's no comfort level in saying anybody else is in control. And I would say right now, in that region, that's probably right, right? I mean, for the most part, anyway. But, uh, but I think in the, on the maps in your Bible, you're going to see that transition happen somewhere around the time of return from Babylon is because... They're not in control. It's either the Persians or it's the Greeks or it's the so-and-sos. So it becomes a generic term, Palestine. Any other questions? All right, good ones. Okay, let's pray and then we'll take off. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for you. We're grateful for history. Uh, I'm grateful for uh, just the edifying that it's done for me going through it and seeing how each of these pieces were the way that they are for a reason, that all of these are orchestrated by you, and uh, we we make our plans, and we do all those kinds of things, but our hearts are a river in your hands. You turn them whichever way you see fit, and that is apparent as we read through all of these things, that all of this is setting up the coming of the Savior of the world. And so we pray that you would... uh, Allow that message to resound within us that we might be confident as we read anything that you are the orchestrator of all human history, that it all began with you and it will all end in before your throne. And may we uh, resign ourselves to that fact and may it cause us to have a desire to worship you all the more knowing that you not only are sovereign and you have that kind of control over our lives and over human history, but you are good and you're righteous and you're just and you love us and you saved us. that You're patient, you're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And so we pray that that would cause our hearts to sing with joy by being called your children. Thank you for saving us, and we pray that this fuel our worship of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at ten thirty and Wednesday nights at six fifteen.